0: Our sermon text today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man's blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one gets a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment And a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so that both are preserved. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had been suffering from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she had said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, for your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, He said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. And as they were going away, behold, the demon-oppressed man, who was mute, was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never has anything like this been seen in Israel. But the Pharisee said he cast out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest, the word of the Lord.
1: Be to God. Well, let's pray together. Uh, Lord Jesus, I, uh, I. The the irony is not lost on me, and I know it's not lost on uh, many others who are here uh, this morning. Uh, uh, As as the one who you've called to preach now from this text this morning, I know that I was once uh, more paralyzed than this paralytic, and I was once more unclean than the woman and more dead even than that little girl, and I was more self-righteous than the Pharisees. And I laughed at you. And my story is just like the story of so many others here. And the great pivot in our stories is your mercy. And we celebrate you. And we adore and love you for being that amazing pivot of mercy and healing, forgiving, transforming power in our lives. And we want now, as we're re-engaging with you through your word, we uh, we want our hearts, our minds to honor you. And we long for those who are still paralyzed, who are still blind, who are still mute, to be set free today by the same power that saved us. So come, we pray in your name, amen. Uh, we finish our uh, study of uh, Matthew 8 and 9 uh, this week, uh, Lord willing, unless uh, something happens between now and the end of the sermon. Um, and last week, uh, you remember, we started at the end of chapter 9, those amazing verses, uh, verses uh, 36 through 38, where uh, Matthew summarizes uh, Jesus' ministry in the wake of the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 8 and 9, immediate aftermath of the Sermon on the Mount. It says that when Jesus saw all the crowds and interacted with all the people, uh, right, remember Matthew, uh, the Holy Spirit using Matthew is giving us this incredible privilege of being able to stand behind Jesus' eyes, to see through His eyes, what he saw when he looked at the crowds, and even to be inside, as it were, uh, Jesus' heart, to to know what he felt when he looked at all those needy people. And it's exactly the same thing he sees today when he looks at all of us. It's exactly the same thing that he feels today when he looks at all of us. He sees that we are harassed and helpless, Like sheep without a shepherd. And he has compassion. It's an amazing thing. So powerful, so strong, so mighty, so tender, Uh, so firm, so soft, so concerned about others, so, so. Uh, defensive is not the right word, but so valiant in the defense of his own glory. And this morning we thought, I mean, last week we thought about really what Jesus saw when he looked at the lostness of men and what he did about the lostness of men. This morning I want to look at chapter 9 through the lens of two different but related questions. And that's the question really from our side. Of that relationship, what do we see when we look at Jesus? This Jesus in Matthew nine, and how are we responding to this Jesus? So last week was Jesus's side, and this week I want to, uh, through the stories in uh, Matthew nine, I want to think about our uh, side of the question. So I wanna, I want to enter that by thinking about the people in this chapter, um, because all week long I'll tell you what has captivated my imagination. Pat, I just saw you in the blanket. That's absolutely incredible. Okay. Is it cold in here? Sorry, Pat. I just, you know, I always feel like I'm boiling up here. So, okay, Pat. I love you. I love you. Thank you for singing this morning. It's a first, Pat. I had to, I had to say something about it. I have compassion on you. Okay. So all week long, what I've been thinking about as I've been reading this passage is what happened next? What happened next? To the paralytic? What happened next to all the people that Jesus healed? What happened next to all the crowds who were around when Jesus was healing? What happened next to the Pharisees and the scribes who were Jesus' critics? I mean, think about it. We don't know. What happened to the paralytic's life? Uh, Matthew only tells us uh, very Matthew. Matthew is if you look at if you compare Matthew's versions of some of these events to like Mark's or Luke's, Matthew is the most economical. He gives you the fewest words. It's very interesting. And, you know, this amazing story has happened in verses 1 through 8. The paralytic has, Jesus has just proclaimed in the midst of this crowd, you know, his friends have, have brought the paralytic before Jesus. And they, you know, everyone is waiting for Jesus to forgive, I mean, to, to cause him to walk. You know, and Jesus, the first thing out of Jesus' mouth while he's still on the cot is, your sin, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And people are like, what about the thing that's really important? And Jesus demonstrates his authority to forgive sins. Well, Matthew, all Matthew tells us in verse 7 is, and he rose and went home. What, what happened next? I mean, did the man understand which of the two gifts that, that Jesus had given him that day was the greater gift? Which one did he celebrate the most later on? for the rest of his life, which one exhilarated him the most? Which problem, his neurological problem or his theological problem, still felt big to him? And most of all, what was his view of Jesus later on? Which one of those gifts, the forgiveness of his sins or his ability to walk, defined him the more? Or what about Matthew? We actually know a lot about Matthew. We know more about Matthew and what happened to him after his call than any of the other people in Matthew 9. We know Matthew was... uh, Uh, a tax collector. He worked for Herod Antipas. He was probably a customs revenue officer. He was in Capernaum. Capernaum was basically a border town on the Sea of Galilee, so goods that transited into Herod Antipas's territory would have had to pay some kind of of duty or customs Attacks And Matthew would have been essentially working for a bad guy who himself was a Roman puppet. He would not have been in a favored class among the Jews. He would have been smart and educated and probably wealthy. But he would not have been regarded well by his fellow Jews. And here it is, this Jesus, this one he's probably heard about, calls him... It's the exact opposite of how rabbis were followed. The follower followed the rabbi. The rabbi didn't call the follower. And here's Jesus, this great healer, who calls Matthew the scum of Capernaum, calls him to follow him. We know that Matthew was exhilarated, right? And he had a party at his house. And he invited a bunch of his old friends and his new friends Amazing overlap there in Matthew's house, and it's a happy occasion. And we know Matthew went on to be one of the 12 apostles and ultimately wrote this gospel. What about the other tax collectors and sinners, the ones that Matthew had invited to the house, the ones with whom the disciples and Jesus sat down at table? Again, a total scandal. The Pharisees are so provoked by this. How can Jesus be a holy teacher if he's eating with the, the, uh, the scum? He's eating with the bad guys. He's eating with the immoral people. He's eating with the collaborators. He's celebrating. He's not just talking to them. He's around them. What about them? How many of those tax collectors and sinners who were there, who were thrilled uh, to, to accept Matthew's invitation, were thrilled because Jesus was there? How many of them uh, weren't offended at what Jesus said when he said, it's not the well who need a physician, but the sick? How many of them identified with that and and said, yes, the reason I'm here is because I acknowledge I'm sick and I need to be healed? How many of them took joy in Jesus' statement that, He didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. How many of them responded to that call? We don't know. How many of them understood and entered into the reality that we saw in the Lord's Prayer that that the forgiveness of God produces holiness, right? I mean, think about the order of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In other words, Lord, I confess my sin Please forgive me. What's the very next petition? Lead us not into temptation. You see, it's that order. Forgiveness is supposed to produce holiness. The gospel doesn't make you less holy. It makes you more holy when you believe it. Right. That's why Paul always says, may it never be. Are you nuts? Should you sin all the more? You don't understand grace then. How many of these tax collectors and sinners got that, oh, I guess Jesus is approving our sin, and how many of them went away uh, committed to turning away from their sin even as they turned toward Jesus? We don't know. What about the father and his daughter? Father who was just absolutely amazing, such faith. His, His daughter's dead, dead. And he goes up to Jesus and says, if you touch her, she'll live again. Now, remember what we were talking about last week, Ruin, how radical it was for Jesus to touch the leper and how that, you know, because he's breaking, he's crossing a taboo and he, the uncleanness of the leper, if he was any ordinary man, would have made him unclean. Well, this is a ruler in the synagogue. This is a guy who knows Leviticus and he knows that the worst kind of uncleanness you can have is by touching a dead body. And he has the audacity to ask Jesus to come and touch the corpse of his daughter. And the only thing more amazing than that is that the text says that Jesus followed him, knowing that that's what he was asking Jesus to do. What happened to the father after his daughter was raised? He was so desperate when he initially came to Jesus, did he continue to have a high view of Jesus? Or, what about the little girl whom Jesus literally pulled out of death? I wonder what the rest of her life was like. Did she understand that when Jesus gave her life back to her, that he did that so that she would give it back to him? Is that how she lived? Did she know Jesus to be the one who not only controlled death, but defined it? She's not dead. She's sleeping. I've got this under control. Or what about the other woman? What did she do once Jesus had cleansed her? Once Jesus had healed her? What did she do with her restoration? When she wasn't ill, did she continue to want to be near Jesus? Or the three men at the end of the chapter, the two blind men, did they ever shut up, or did, did it just wear off? Or the mute man, now that he could speak, did he speak of Jesus? What about those who witnessed Jesus heal? The crowds, first around the paralytic, Uh, Matthew reports something very interesting. Did you see that in verse 8? When the crowd saw it, I mean, what they've witnessed is just absolutely stunning. Jesus has has very boldly uh, pronounced that the man's sins are forgiven, something that only God has the right to do, which is why the scribes look at him and they think that he's blaspheming. And to prove that he has the authority to forgive sins, he does what everyone else thinks is actually the greater thing for him to do. And heals the man and enables him to walk. And the, and, the, and the crowd's response is full of ambiguity here. Do you notice this? When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God. So we think, that, we think that's good, right? But, but then Matthew tails off and he says, Who had given such authority to men? There's confusion. There's a lack of clarity there. This is not the same thing as saying that they followed Jesus or that they had faith. And so I want to ask the question, Did that fear... You know, obviously, they were in the presence of somebody who was either crazy or incredibly powerful. You could be afraid of this person for the wrong reason. You could think he was a sorcerer, right? Or a magician. But did that fear ever mature into faith that led them to follow Jesus? Or how about the crowds in the girls' house? They laughed at Jesus. What happened when she emerged from the room with Jesus and she was alive? How many of them who had laughed at Jesus were changed by that event into laughing with Jesus? to laughing for joy over the coming of a king who had power over death. And then the critics at the end, or really throughout, everywhere, the scribes, The scribes of the paralytic, you know, they're very critical of Jesus. They accuse him of blasphemy because he's presuming to put himself in the place of God when he says, your sins are forgiven. And do you notice what Jesus' response was in verse 4? It's absolutely amazing. Verse 4. Jesus' response is, why do you think evil in your hearts? You see, does the force of that hit you? See... They think Jesus is blaspheming. And Jesus responds and says, Do you realize that in accusing me of blaspheming, you are blaspheming? Remember what I said earlier about how Jesus is so protective and vigilant over guarding his own identity? He's not bashful, he has the highest view of himself. This is one of those places. And how many of those scribes, once they saw Jesus raise the man from his cot, how many of them repented of their blasphemy and agreed with Jesus that, in fact, it was a blasphemy to call him into question? How many of them, or the Pharisees in Matthew's house, or who witnessed the banquet in Matthew's house, how many of them actually did obey jesus 's command to go and learn what hosea six six means that God would say, "I desire mercy rather than sacrifice don 't give me your hollow go through the motions religion i 'm not manipulatable. I want your heart i don 't want you to give me sacrifices. I want you to to show mercy to other people because that will mean that you know that you have needed my mercy." And your dealings with other people will simply be the echo of how, I, how you've experienced my dealings with you. How many of those Pharisees who were so self-righteous heard Jesus' uh, command to go study an Old Testament text and what it revealed about the heart of God and, revealed, and, and, and discovered when they went to go look at Hosea 6.6, that they, for all their religiosity, for all their meticulous law-keeping, that they themselves had lost the heart of God, and that they were just as unrighteous as the tax collectors and sinners, and needed the mercy of God just as much as they did. I wonder if any of them ever did. How many of them ever, come, ever came to understand what David does in Psalm 51? You know, there is one sacrifice that God says he wants. One. That we can bring him. Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And then even John's disciples, the guys who were supposed to be on Jesus' side, did you notice that? Even they're stuck. Even they're his critics. And Jesus, he kind of lets it rip with them. They say, hey, 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 the Pharisees fast, and we fast. But your guys aren't fasting the way we do a couple times every week. Jesus to John's disciples says, You have no idea who you're dealing with. You have no idea. I have not come to be a patch that we plug up holes with in the old system. I'm not here to patch your old garment. I'm here, and it's me. I am here to give you a whole new garment. I'm here to blow the doors off of all your previous conceptions of what it means for the heart of God to be revealed in the world. Your categories are way too small. They're old wineskins. This is new wine. This is not a little adjustment. This isn't a simple additional app on your iPad. This is a whole new OS. Everything is changing because I'm here. How many... Of those disciples realized that Jesus was right, that it had never entered the mind of man, that no ear had heard, no eye had seen, all that God had prepared for those who love him. It's an amazing thing to think about, but you know what? All those questions, they're they're important only because they serve a much more important question. Because the reason those stories are in the Bible, the reason the Gospel of Matthew is uh, available to us is not to give us an exhaustive history of those lives. It's so that we will be changed so that our histories will be changed. We don't need to know the rest of their histories. The issue that God is posing to each one of us this morning is how are our histories going to be changed by the same Jesus? Where do we go from here? That's the key issue. Not where they went, but where we go from here. Because Jesus is not done... The Jesus who we read about in Matthew 9 is not confined to the four corners of Matthew 9. He is still raising paralytics. He is still saying to people, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Take heart, my daughter. Your faith has made you well, literally has saved you. He is still taking the uncleanness of sinners who will come to him. He is still calling sinners. He is still moving through the world as a physician here to heal the sick. He is still showing the mercy of God. The misery of sin is still calling forth the mercy of God. And the mercy of God is a person, still a person, some of us have experienced physical healings some of us have have been brought into the fold out of shame and uncleanness and just an overwhelming sense of guilt some of us have been have been and folded in out of pasts that we never could have managed, uh, imagined escaping into a beautiful life. And every single one of us who is a Christian has felt the touch of Jesus Christ pulling us out of death into life already. And we forget it, don't we? We forget what it was like to hear Jesus say for the first time, Take heart. My son, your sins are forgiven. We need to remember again what it feels like to be in the presence of that Lord, that mighty King, who says to us, Take heart, my daughter. Your faith has made you well. Jesus is a great physician. And he heals still today. And our lives are supposed to tell the story of that healing and that story of his power as a physician. But it means two things. Because he's a physician, we have to agree with his diagnosis and we have to agree with his remedy. What it is we need to be healed from and how. He will heal us. And the issue, my friends, and everyone is making one or the other of these calls right now about Jesus. Either, I'm adapting Lewis here a little bit, either we are reacting to Jesus as though he were a quack, a charlatan we could dismiss, or we are moving toward him in love and awe and humility as a great physician. No one will leave here in a third option this morning. So what's Jesus' diagnosis of us? Well, it's amazing when you look at Matthew 9. one way to think about it, Matthew 8 2, but let's just confine it to Matthew 9 because we would be here until next July, which would be okay with me. I just know I'd be alone. Um, Pat and leave blanket so I could sleep in that, so it'd be good, okay? You know, if you think about the variety of people and their problems in Matthew 9, it's like this massive debris field of sin that Jesus just walks us through. And it's just, a, just one part of the debris field of sin. It, you know, if you're not used to reading the Bible, that may sound like kind of a weird uh, way to describe sin because, you know, it, outside of the Bible, the way people, people typically think about sin, and, and unfortunately the way Christians tend to talk about it exclusively, is that it's just the breaking of a rule. It's really inadequate biblically. Sin is about ru- the ruination of something beautiful. It's not a one-dimensional problem. It's a multi-dimensional problem. And Jesus, when you look at the different people in this chapter, it's a, it's a disease with so many symptoms, and, and it's got so many facets And we get just a sampling of them in in the stories and the lives that are in this chapter. There's sin's liability. I have seven of these, so I'll walk through them very quickly. There's sin's liability. In other words, that sin is not just a flaw, something that we need to improve in ourselves. That fundamentally, sin is an offense. It's a crime against a person. And it has to be forgiven or compensated and punished. There's also sin's universality. Do you notice that in this chapter? Sin is no respecter of persons. You can be young, you can be old. You can be a child, you can be an adult. You can be male, you can be female. You can be a religious leader, you can be a prostitute. You can be a tax collector, or you could be a really religious person. It's everybody. There's sin's impurity. If all you said, if you said that all sin results in is guilt, you'd be wrong biblically. We don't see it because we're all drinking the dirty water. But you notice how the story of the woman, very powerfully, and the story of the girl, very powerfully bring into issue the whole, whole way in which sin contaminates and pollutes and poisons everything. That's a big issue in the Old Testament. It's not just guilt. That's why there are different offerings in, in Leviticus. Again, I want to preach the book of Leviticus. You, you, when, you start, when you open the, the book of Leviticus, there's like five or six different offerings that are the first six or seven chapters. You go, why are there all these different offerings? It's because what God is showing us is that sin is not a one-dimensional problem. It's not just about our guilt. Sin has consequences. It pollutes things. And one of the things it does is it makes us unclean in the sight of a holy God and it needs to be that impurity needs to be cleansed. There's also sins deformity. It deforms us, it misshapes us. It does that morally, it does it relationally, it does it physically. There's sins penalty which is death. Right, you know that from Genesis 2:17. In the day you eat of this tree, you shall die. The way, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Now, we don't often think about it, and this world is so beautiful that it's easy to lose track of it, but you know what, do you know what it means? That from Genesis 3 until Revelation 20, every single one of us is born on death row and lives our entire lives on death row That's what that means. But we've painted the walls and we've forgotten that that's what it is. But God says this isn't real life. Since penalty is a dark penalty... Jesus looks at us, he diagnoses us, he says, you're under sin's liability, there's sin's universal reach, there's sin's deformity, it's impurity, it's penalty, there's also it's insanity. Why would you exchange the glory of God for lesser things? Why would you re- exchange the crown that God wants to give you as his image bearers and say, no, I'd much rather have one of those Burger King cardboard things? Which is what we do. It's insane. It's insane. And so that's why, friends, this is number seven. That's why when Jesus looks at this paralytic... And his friends bring the paralytic before him. And it's so obvious what the guy's biggest problem in life is, right? The thing that defines him is his paralysis, right? I mean, everyone else can see it. Everyone else can see that the, only, the, the, the main way to show this guy love, the main kindness that he needs from God is for his physical paralysis to be lifted. And Jesus looks at him and sees beneath the surface in the same way that he does for each one of us, and he looks past the symptoms to the disease, the great physician sees what he really needs. And so what he treats first is what he needs most. And so he says, take heart, my son, your sins forgiven. Now, right there, okay, right there is one of those hard edges about Jesus. And you're either going to say he's a quack or you're going to agree with his diagnosis. See, Jesus knows that the man's physical paralysis is only going to last if untreated for the rest of his physical life. But he knows, at the same time, that the wages of his sin have eternal consequences. And so Jesus moves to the most urgent problem first. And that's what he wants to do with each of us. And so the question is, will we submit to his diagnosis? That's a really hard thing for most of us. It's, it's, it, it, it stays hard, even as a Christian, because we, we lose track so easily of how great our need for Jesus is. And that's one of the dangers of staying away from God's Word, and one of the blessings of remaining in God's Word, is you see yourself through God's eyes, which is the truest way to understand yourself. So Jesus' diagnosis is that sin is our most urgent problem, and then he he gives us a remedy. And the remedy, amazingly enough, is himself. Uh, That's the thing that just keeps popping up as you read this chapter again and again, is that Jesus keeps moving toward... uh, uh, sinners, it keeps moving toward people, and he proposes himself as the the solution, right? And and there are three things that Matthew highlights for us in these th- three things about Jesus. Uh, the three powers of Jesus that Matthew highlights in this chapter that are really the reasons why we should submit to him totally, why we should love him, why we should follow him. Three things about Jesus that if we're going to know and serve Christ, we have to embrace and, and know about him and love. And those, those three things are these, his power to heal our sin, his power to heal us from death, and his power to define our joy. Let's think first about his power uh, to heal our sin. And that's where we go back to the story of the paralytic, which is just amazing. Now, I've already said that when Jesus, already explained that when Jesus stands in front of all these people and says to this man, my son, your sins are forgiven, that the reason the scribes react to that, they're so taken aback by it, they don't even say anything out loud, they say this guy's blaspheming. And what they mean is that, that only God, only God can forgive sins. And everyone knows that, right? I mean, to get a feel for how radical this is, I want you to imagine that if I, that I come to you this afternoon and I say, Hey, I, I'm tempted to use Pat, but I feel like I've already used her enough. Okay, so I'm going to look the other way. So I come to you. Are you glad? Yeah, Okay. Take heart, Mike, your sins are forgiven, okay? So let's say I come to you and I say, hey, I want you to know that I've forgiven all the sins that have ever been committed against you. Not that you've committed, but that have ever been committed against you. You would say, "Uh, sorry, you don't have any ownership rights in those sins, you're not the offended party. I'm the offended party. You don't have any right to forgive sins that have been committed against me. And you would be absolutely correct. you know that? Because unless... It's only the offended party who can presume to forgive sins, right? You see, what Jesus is doing when he says to this man, my son, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven, he is putting himself in the place of the, man, of the party who has been offended by this man's sins. He is saying, and friends, you need to feel the weight of this, he is saying that every sin is against him. That means that he is God. God. Now again, Jesus is not saying, again, we see the different ways that the Bible proves the deity of Jesus, okay? There's the direct ways like uh, John 1.1, 1, 1, and the word was God. Very obvious, or Hebrews 1 or Colossians 1. And then you have Jesus affirming and, dis- and displaying his deity without using the words, I am God but by claiming to himself the prerogatives that belong only to God. Here's an example of that. So he is God. He is claiming to be the offended party. So that means that he has the right, the reason he has the first reason that he has power to heal us from our sins is because he and he alone has the right to forgive us our sins since he is the offended party. You see, so when you look at the cross or you hear him say, friends, the reason this is so practical, this is so practical, is because when he says to the paralytic, take heart, my sons, your sins are forgiven, he's not talking, he's not binding somebody else who's not, who, who ultimately is the great offended party. He's not speaking on behalf of anyone. He is the offended party. That means he has the right to forgive you. But even more amazing than that, perhaps in the gospel, is that Jesus has the power to heal us from our sins because not only is he the one who stands in the place of the offended party. I mean, just that alone is amazing. Do you realize what that says about the cross? Do you realize what that says Jesus was doing? What he was willing to do, he was the offended party and he still went through Gethsemane and didn't call legions of angels down to rescue him. That's just amazing. But because Jesus was not only fully God, he was fully man, that means that he has fully put himself in the place not just of the offended one, but also the offender. You see, he has the right To forgive us our sins because he is God. And he is able to make compensation for those sins justly because he has fully identified not just with the offended party, but with the offending parties. You see the brilliance of the gospel? Do you see why Jesus, why our Redeemer had to be fully God and fully man? And do you see that in the relationship between those two things, there is power to heal us from our sins? He has the right to forgive us, and He has the power and standing in our place to secure a righteous forgiveness of our sins. Because compensation is made by a man. For men. I just think that's incredible if the gospel doesn't take your breath away it means that you need to have your heart rate checked and God did all that for sick sinners <laughs> hallelujah and then he's got power so when he says to you friends take heart your sins are forgiven he means it he means it And he's got power not just to heal us from our sins, but ultimately to heal us from death. In the story with the little girl, do you see what Jesus is doing? The people come in, I mean the people see him come in and he says, get out of here. She's not dead, she's only sleeping. And they laugh at him, right? They just laugh at him. They say, you're a kook. You see what Jesus is doing? He's not mistaken. He knows she's dead. The Father has told him that she's dead at the beginning of the story. What Jesus is showing us there is that what it means for him to save his people from their sins, Matthew one twenty one. what it means ultimately is that he is going to determine the boundaries of death. He has authority over death. He is the one who defines what death is and isn't. That's power. But you know what he does with the little girl? It's wonderful. It is amazing. I mean, just he pulls her literally out of death with his grip. But you know what? It's not the greatest thing that he was going to do. It's just a hint, it's just an aroma, it's just a glimpse of coming attractions. Because you know what? That girl died later. And so did Matthew, and so did the paralytic. And so did all the tax collectors and sinners, and so did the Pharisees, and so did the scribes, and so did every single member of that crowd, and so did the two blind men, and so did the mute man. In other words, the celebrations at the paralytic's home, I'm, I'm assuming there was one, and the celebration, which I assume happened in the girl's home, those were exceptions to the rule, right? The breaking in of a temporary provisional joy. Celebration in Lazarus' house. You know, Lazarus died too. So what are these? Is he raising our hopes falsely? No. You see, they're just previews. There's an aroma. They're overtures. They're introducing the themes that Jesus is going to carry out in the rest of his ministry. They're showing us that this one has authority over death. He has the power to say to death, thus far and no farther I take from you these who are mine at will. Now, either he's a quack or he's the greatest physician. There's no third option. The greatest proof that he has authority over death is that he didn't just touch it from the outside, he went through it on the inside. How many of you young kids have seen the Avengers? How many of you old kids have seen the Avengers? Oh, come on. Okay, Iron Man. You remember when Iron Man says to his computer Jarvis, I know it's pathetic that I know all this. There's that creature that's flying through the the sky, and Iron Man says to his computer, you ever heard about Jonah? And Iron Man flies right into the heart of that monster and disappears and lets that monster swallow him up and then bursts out of it. That is Jesus. That is Jesus. Jesus goes all the way into death. You see, he didn't just touch it. See, when he pulled the girl out, he was on the life side of the divide, right? Right? and he pulled her back but what Jesus is where Jesus's ministry is heading ultimately is that he's going to defeat death by entering death on the death side of that divide going all the way in letting himself be swallowed up to pay all the wages of sin of all of his people who would ever trust in him and underneath all the weight of that judgment, underneath all the weight of that indebtedness, when the full burden of all the sins of his people is all the way upon him, he pushes out. That's how you know that he has power over death. That's how you know. So he is either, right, he is either a quack that you need to run away from or he is the greatest physician who you need to run toward. There's no third option. But finally, Jesus has authority and power over our joy, authority to define our joy. And this is the theme that we also go back to um, the his interaction with the John's disciples. You know, people who ought to know better. The the people who are closest to Jesus here, other than his disciples, right? They should be, John's disciples should be his allies. And you notice what he says to them. They come to him, verse fourteen. They say, "Hey, how come you guys aren't fasting? What are you teaching these disciples of yours?" And you'd see what Jesus's answer is. <laughs> It is the ultimate theological megatonnage that he drops on them. He says, Don't you understand? Uh, I'm the bridegroom you've been waiting for. I'm the bridegroom that, uh, that the Holy Spirit has been talking about since Genesis 3, and I'm finally here. How could we not celebrate? You see, it's my presence that determines whether we are joyful or not. And it's my absence that is the definition of sadness. Again, either he is the craziest megalomaniac who you need to run away from, or he is the greatest physician whom you need to run toward. Either he... He's a crazy man who's in this all and only for himself, or he's a physician who wants to heal you by giving you true joy, which he is at the center of. Do you notice over and over throughout the chapter, you get these glimpses of celebration. They're everywhere. We assume the paralytic is celebrated. We assume, right, there was celebration in Matthew's house, uh, this wonderful meal uh, there's a, Jesus refers to a wedding banquet, right? There's all the healings. And then Jesus is talking about new wine, right? The wine is going to flow. What's he doing? He's, he, there are all these little glimpses of feasts and smaller celebrations that are pointing to an ultimate feast, They're pointing forward to what Jesus' ministry is ultimately going to be about. He's going to heal us from our sins. He's going to defeat death. And then for what purpose? Why is he doing all this? He has come to bring us joy. He has come to be our joy. All week long, I've been thinking about the girl's house. When she came back into that room alive... I wonder, did those flute players, did those professional mourners, did they know how to be joyful? Did they know a song that was worthy of the wonder of what Jesus had done? Did they have music to celebrate the scale of what he had done, or did they only know sad songs? Let me tell you what Jesus is doing in history. He's taking a funeral and he's turning it into a feast. He's taking a cemetery and he's turning it into a garden. He's taking a funeral dirge and he's turning it into a jig. That's what he's proving to us he's doing in history through these stories. They're hints, they're glimpses, they're overtures. They're the beginning, they're the first movement of a great symphony, right? And, and themes are being laid out, power over uh, our sin, power to heal us from our sin, power to defeat death, and not just in a skirmish, but, but to bring total peace, to destroy death, the writer to Hebrews says, and to deliver us from our fear of death, the writer to the Hebrews says, chapter 2, verse 15. And what Jesus is doing is he's introducing the themes, the first movement of that symphony in these stories. All the aspects of his earthly ministry are really just an introduction. And and through the cross and through his resurrection, we see those themes get developed more and more. And friends, the music is building and building and building Right? It's swallowing nations up. It's swallowing the world up. It's getting more and more beautiful. And ultimately, it will swallow our persons up in glorification. It will swallow all of creation up in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the extent and scale of the joy that Jesus is bringing. There is a music of the gospel that is started. And it's building and building and building, and it's a music that when we stop and listen to it it gets more beautiful the more we listen to it. You never get tired of it. So it's good to be reminded. Friends, there's only one question for each of us this morning, and it's this Where is your story going from here? Is he a quack or the great physician? Let's pray. We uh, give ourselves to you, Lord Jesus, because you have first given yourself to us. We pray in your name. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>